This is C-SPAN's Afterwards podcast. This week, science journalist Angela Saini discusses her book, The Patriarchs, The Origins of Inequality. She explores the origins of patriarchy and how it spread to societies around the world. She's interviewed by author and Women's Media Center director Soraya Shamali. It's terrific to be here with you today. Um, we'll just jump right, right in here. Uh-huh. I, I was right. delighted um, to read The Patriarchs, uh, like your earlier books. Uh, my first question really is, can you describe your path to getting to this book? Um, because it's um, sort of a, it pulls from all your other work. It does. Um, and I think it was partly inspired by um, one of my previous books, Inferior. There was a chapter in there on male domination. How is it that men came to rule? And the question that I was constantly asked by readers was that if societies haven't always been male dominated, which I think most anthropologists agree now they haven't been, then how did we get to this? Mm. <laughs> All over the world, patriarchy, which is a very warped social system, when you think about it, um, is so widespread. And yet that question is so rarely interrogated in the literature. In fact, it's been around 40 years since this was a hot topic, even within feminist literature, this question of origins. So I thought, given how much more we have learned in anthropology, in archaeology, in history, the huge rewriting that has been done within the scholarship of Um, women's history that it's time to revisit it and it was astounding to me what that history showed you know you have canvassed this enormous span of time and so many scientific disciplines and I think one of your points is clearly that there isn't one patriarchy that there isn't a universal umbrella system that that we all sort of labor under uh, so can you can you talk about that? Can you talk about the the vastness and complexity of the subject? Because you managed to distill that um, into this really pithy volume. I mean, it's amazing, right? It's it's really quite a feat. Well, it became rapidly clear that when you look at systems of male domination across the world, they are each different depending on the culture or the society, and even through time. So when we think about patriarchy, we often imagine it to be this kind of huge monolith, um, almost, um, we're almost fatalistic about it sometimes, that it is this this abstract concept that has existed as far back as anyone can remember and that it's very similar anywhere you are in the world. And actually, um, in reality, it is very patchy and piecemeal. Um, It is far more fragile than we imagine. And when you look at... um, how far back it goes, there's no doubt that in some parts of the world, for example, in Europe, it does stretch back thousands of years. But then there are other parts of the world in which it is very new, in which there are people who within living memory can remember the encroachment of patriarchal norms within their society. You know, I want to jump forward, actually. Initially, I thought we could sort of move through the book the way way you wrote it. But that kind of opened a door um, because, in fact, what you just described is an ongoing process in the United States and other settler colonial countries. And you talk about that um, from the perspective of the ways in which Western European colonial and imperial power imposed a very rigid binary gender structure that was patriarchal on societies that had enormous variety in their sense of gender and in the way that people in those communities understood power and leadership and could relate to each other. Can you talk about that? Because I think that 
part of the issue of this universal universality is that it's taken, as you said, as natural. Mm. Um, one of the pleasures of having moved here to the U.S. around a year and a half ago, I live here now, is that I've been able to immerse myself much more fully in the histories of indigenous communities, indigenous societies in the U.S. and across the Americas. And what you see very quickly, especially here in New York, where I live, is that the traditions of the Haudenosaunee, if you look throughout history, were very much uh, female-centered, mother-centered, and matrilineal. Um, And this came as a huge surprise, actually, to settler colonialists when they arrived in, in the Americas and started to interact with these communities, because for them, what they were building, the project of the United States, was supposed to be a very forward-thinking one that um, foregrounded equality. Women's equality obviously came very late. Women were given the vote not until the 20th century. But in the 19th century, as women were fighting for this vote and as abolitionists were fighting for emancipation, people were looking at the Haudenosaunee and asking themselves, why is it that here we have such an egalitarian society, one that offers so much agency and power to women, in which women have roles of authority, and yet we are still fighting for this, and we are meant to be the kind of nation leading the way for the rest of the world. That paradox um, came to give birth to a huge literature um, and, and this kind of introspection among philosophers and politicians, anthropologists, asking themselves, why is it that history you know, what was the uh, the root of history? How how did it actually happen? Cause of, because, of course, this contradicted religious versions of history. It contradicted the United States' own kind of origin stories. Um, the way they squared that circle was to say that primitive societies were matriarchal and that modern societies had, in their wisdom, uh, transitioned into patriarchy. So, of course, then um, indigenous societies in that way of thinking about the world became consigned to the past, somehow backward. Right. Um, and that happened all over the world. There are matrilineal societies in across Asia, across a vast belt of Africa, and, of course, um, across the Americas. And that really has cast a long shadow over the way that we now think about patriarchy. That, we, that it has been equated sometimes in the literature with something that is inevitable because it is a product of modernity, when actually it is just another way of organizing right. people. And the fact that it is so common is actually a product of colonialism itself. Part of the colonial project in the United States was to, the words that I use, is civilize women into patriarchy, to Mm -hmm. tell them that they had no role, a public-facing role, no role in agriculture as they they had before, and that actually they should be domestic because it was in the domestic sphere that women were seen to achieve true equality in the words of the Founding Fathers. You know, it's interesting because I think a lot of people might hear you describe that and think that this is something consigned to the past. But you you're, you go to great pains to explain that it's a, a it's a process of constant invention and reinvention, and one of the one of the structures I think that was created out of what you just described this idea of nation building and progress and and um, a, a certain subjectivity that was of the future was Republican motherhood uh, mm-hmm. in in the sense that domesticity and the home and the hearth were where women 
needed to focus their efforts and where they had their greatest value, which is, of course, as you also describe, the place where, where inequality was so institutionalized and, frankly, where white supremacy became very, very institutionalized. And we see that today, right? Can you talk about the connections between the development of those ideas over the course of several centuries, both in the United States and, as you describe, throughout the world? We often still imagine that, you know, the oppression of women necessarily requires separate spheres, that women's place is in the home and the man's place is out in public, and that in our imagination we stretch that even into prehistory. You know, we have this Flintstones model of the past in our head in which Wilma stays at home and takes care of the kids and does the housework and Fred goes out and uh, does the hunting and killing and he, in this, you know, in this imaginative scenario that we've created, that there is a palpable difference between the sexes that goes right the way back into the dawn of time. Um, Now, of course... That idea of separate spheres for for different sexes was an ancient Greek one, and even within ancient Greece, it developed slowly. Because, as as you can imagine, you know, in the, in the past, people wouldn't have had the kind of space and resources to have separate spaces for men and women, and nor would they necessarily have imagined themselves needing those separate spaces. So these are this idea of gendered roles and a particular way of organising society around gender emerged very, very slowly over thousands of years. And it was what um, the United States founding fathers really borrowed from when they were creating the United States is that they looked to religion and they looked in their imagination to nature. They imagined that in the past, this is how it would always have been. And so from the very inception, from the constitution onwards, there was this idea that women, a woman's natural place is in the home and a man's natural place is out in the public. And that really became a guiding principle for so much of, you know, the laws around marriage and everything else within the United States, education, whether women had the vote or not. Um, Even well into the 19th century when women were fighting for their rights, they were battling against this... um, this image that had been created of them, that they really had no role. Um, In the 20th century, when people started to push back, then you get um, a kind of broadening out, an interrogation of what those roles actually meant and whether that was appropriate or, or not. And it's interesting to see, in fact, you know, going back to the previous question, how much they borrowed from what they had seen in other societies, including the Haudenosaunee, Native American societies in the U.S., um, to conceive of something different, to radically imagine how different society might look and look to the rest of the world for uh, proof that actually what was always imagined to be natural was not really natural at all. So this is, I think, really important in your book. You, you talk about different forms of inequality and, and their intersections, but right at the onset... You, you ask this question, why is gender inequality considered exceptional? Can you elaborate on that? Can you talk about that idea? Um, Which kind of leads into the question of when gender became salient. You ask that question in the book. Um, So I want to ask you that question. 
Well, that's what I was always coming back to. <laughs> I was almost trying to find this moment in history in which gender became salient. It's almost an impossible question to answer mm. because it's different for different societies and it happens very gradually. So the further back you go into prehistory, one of the places I visited when I was researching the patriarchs was Chattelhuyuk, which is this very famous ancient settlement in Anatolia, not very far from where the Turkish earthquakes uh, just recently happened. Um, this is a settlement that's 9,000 years old, so it predates the pyramids in Egypt, it predates Stonehenge, Harappa in India, um, and it is a very sophisticated settlement. Thousands of people would have lived there. Houses were built um, kind of on top of each other and back to back, so people would have walked on top of their roofs in order to manoeuvre. And what we see very clearly is that there weren't huge gender differences in how people lived. So you don't see men and women necessarily doing different work. All the measures we have for gender inequality using archaeological methods show that men and women did practically the same things, ate practically the same things. The size difference between them was slight. Um, and there are, there are so many female figurines from this point in time. So women were not invisible here in these societies. That's as much as we can know because this is pre-writing. We don't have written evidence. Um, but what it does show is that we cannot necessarily project our ideas about gender onto the distant past. If we are going to think about how gender manifested, we have to let go of our stereotypes. And um, just imagine a world in which we are starting from scratch, in which so many different ways of living would be possible. And certainly that's what you see the further back you go, is that people are trying out different ways of life. They're abandoning certain societies. If, they don't, if this community doesn't work for them, they leave and try something else. If anything, over time, over thousands of years, with the development of states and institutions and religions that have become kind of more rigid and widespread, we have ossified, in a way, our social systems. They feel natural to us because they are so rigid and so old. But that doesn't mean that flexibility isn't possible again. We can live life any way we want. But um, it's only over, the, over many thousands of years that um, we have tricked ourselves into believing that there's only really one way to organize society. And patriarchy seems natural because of that. Um, in, your, in your book, one of the best descriptions that you have um, is that patriarchy is a slow grift. Uh, which I, which I really appreciate. Um, it's also very clear that, as you say, there are patriarchies and that they have this incredible resilience and adaptability. Um, you quote Kate Millett, I think, at the beginning of the book in saying that patriarchy is the control of men over women. But I think something that people tend to brush aside is maybe the degree to which it's the control of more powerful men, often older men, over young men. Um, and so can you talk, I, I want to kind of move us from the realm of the expansive historic and public to the more personal and interpersonal um, and those kinds of dynamics that implicate feelings of identity, belonging, meaning, shame. Um, what is it like for uh, men who resist patriarchy, right? Like it, 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 is, it can be frightening and shame-inducing, uh, so what, how would you categorize the nature of relationship between men in patriarchy? That's a really good question. Um, and it kind of went to the heart of 
this uh, question of the origins of patriarchy because I think in a lot of literature what you see is people framing patriarchy as the rule of the father within the family and then it kind of stretches out that you know then Mm -hmm. you get the rule of the powerful men within the state or the king over his kingdom and um Actually, argue, I argue exactly the opposite, which is that gender depression began with the state and then filtered down into the family. It was a state that required people to live in very rigid, gendered ways in order to serve the elites. So if you think about it, those very early states, for example, in ancient Mesopotamia, their big concern was always population. This was, you know, this was what they were obsessed about, because how do you get people to stay and serve this state, serve the interests of the elite when they could quite easily leave if they wanted to. And population requires a number of things. One, it requires people to have as many children as possible. And two, it requires loyalty, loyalty to the state so you don't want to leave. And also um, people loyal enough to be willing to give up their children to fight for the state, particularly their young sons, to serve the military aims of the state, to make sure that their territory is defended and, in the case of empire, that they can expand if they want to. So that concern really drove, I think, um, a lot of that, a lot of the gender depression in those uh, early societies. Um, And it created this kind of imposition on families, as you can well, imagine that, you know, a family would re- be required to not just be loyal, but also produce as many children as possible. So then the gender question comes in because women would be expected to have as many children as possible. Now, if we just very quickly within that zoom forward to the present day, we can see that concern about population even in modern day states. As soon as birth rates start falling, you can see countries start panicking. The Soviet Union, which was the first country in the world to legalize abortion in 1920, later on, Stalin reversed that act because birth rates are falling, and then it was later reintroduced again. So this birth rate population issue, that control of women's reproductive freedom, was a concern for, for states right from the beginning. Well, and it's one now here in yeah, the United States. Yeah, and it States. still is. Yeah, right. Well, we I mean, that's that. quite overt, I think. Um, Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. It, I think you you begin your book with a timeline at 13 BCE and end it with the Dobbs decision that overturned Roe v. Wade. Um, not accidentally, I imagine. Um, so let's talk a minute about your concept of alienation and what that represents in these dynamics. So if we if we then look at this family, this family that has been required by the state to produce as many children as possible, particularly sons who will be available to fight for the state, um, but also have loyalty, um, you can you can see what kind of pressures that puts within a family and um, the kind of strict laws that then emerged. Now, one of the (coughs) other, I think, necessary conditions for a patriarchal society is patrilocality. So parallel to this, parallel to this development of states and this interest in gender as an organizing principle, what you also see is um, in those societies in which women leave their families to go and live with their husbands' families after they get married, this is known as patrilocality. It isn't universal. It isn't practiced everywhere (coughs) in the world. But it, it certainly is in patriarchal societies. That movement from your safety of your childhood family into what in the past, and even for many women today, may be little more than strangers 
who may be very far away from you, creates automatically this um, condition of alienation and separation uh, and vulnerability. So one of the things that you see um, through the development of marriage institutions within patrilocal societies and patrilineal societies is that um, marriage starts to very quickly resemble the same kind of institutions as slavery and captive taking that within, for example, um, one of the one of the um, the master slave relationships within slavery would require you to take on the name of your master in order to be then subsumed within his identity and you see that also within pat- patriarchal marriage this idea that the wife takes her husband's name leaving her father's name behind that the father gives away his daughter to the husband's family um, you can see it even more overtly in the later development of the laws around marriage, this law of couverture, which basically said that a woman's identity is her husband's identity. She doesn't have a legal identity of her own, that her, she cannot keep her earnings, that her children don't necessarily belong to her. So that process of alienation and separation within the family, I think, was one of these major vehicles for patriarchal power. It created a power imbalance even at the family level. You know, I think that, again... What you just described is um, difficult for people to understand how recent in our history that is, Mm. Um, because in the United States, it was only in the mid-20th century, uh, well into the 70s, that what you just described ceased to have legal hold on women in terms of having their own bank accounts, in terms of being able to divorce, in terms of, um, excuse me, being independent enough. Um, And so... I want to switch ground here to the vast array of uh, matrilineal societies that you cover um, with huge, like, just surprising fact after surprising fact. Was there anything in what you found that really struck you? Um, it, many, many of the examples you gave, um, like I think it was um, the Kingdom of Women, uh, are exceptional, but again, we treat them as exceptional as opposed to among an array of options that are available to humans in terms of how they organize themselves. Uh, So can you talk about what you found and what you found most interesting? Yeah, we we often imagine male domination to be universal, that the oppression of women exists on every single, in every single society, on every single part of the earth, and it has been like that for a very long time. And... um, The evidence just doesn't show that. Um, I only have one illustration in my book, and it's a map of matrilineal societies. And what you see very quickly is that there are many of them all over the world. Um, And I couldn't, you know, examine each of them separately. But I think one takeaway I really want readers to have is to know that each of these societies are different in their own way. It's not as though matrilineality takes um, just one form, in the way that we imagine patriarchy takes one form. Every single society is different. Um, And what they've managed to do is just organise things differently. These are societies in which property and names are often passed through the mother's line from mother to daughter, in which daughters are often prized, in which authority is often shared between women and men depending on the circumstances. Um, And... um, in you know some of some of these cases, for example, the Moswo in China, um, you get a huge amount of um, 
confusion when outsiders see these societies because gender norms seem to be completely different from what they used to, that women seem much more confident that they are listened to when they speak. And the lesson that gives you, and certainly what I took away from that, was that why do we treat patriarchy as though it is somehow inevitable? The interesting thing to me is not that matrilineal societies exist, you know, these so-called exceptional societies. What is more disturbing to me and what is more of a puzzle to me than that is that patriarchy is so widespread. If we have so many different options, why is it that this one option has become um, the one that so many people have happened to choose? And of course, it isn't a process of choosing. It is a process of imposition and gradual kind of weeding its way into so many parts of the world through so many different mechanisms over many thousands of years, which mean that now matrilineal societies look exceptional, but of course they weren't always that way. So I think that's a really excellent segue into religiosity, religious institutions, and Mm -hmm. um, symbols. You mentioned throughout the book various cultures and societies that didn't symbolically annihilate women. Um, And what we have globally is a rise and an increasing rise in um, monotheistic, all-male god figureheads um, and all the patriarchal norms and mores and expectations that come from that. Can, can you talk about the tension between those two things and how would you categorize the relationship of the patriarchies that you describe with the rise of these types of religious beliefs? Well, because our major religions, major world religions, are so old, I think we often equate the rise of patriarchy with the major world religions. In reality... At the time that they were developed, so for example, when Christianity was first emerging you know, as a cult um, in ancient Rome or when um, Islam was first developing later on, these were seen as roots to equality for people. So we have to remember that at that particular point in time, you know, gender depression is not the only form of oppression, of course. There have been feudal societies and slave ownership and captive taking have been widespread right the way through history. So at the time when these religions emerged and kind of preached this gospel of equality, this idea that we are all human, we are all equal under the eyes of God, that was quite revolutionary at the time. And even women flocked to these religions, these cults, because of that. They genuinely thought that this was a different way of looking at the world. Now, over time, They've become to be associated with patriarchy, not just because their their text. There's no doubt there is, you know, there are passages within the Bible, within the Torah, within the Quran that do, and within Hindu texts that very do clearly mandate or at least espouse this kind of um, these fundamental differences between men and women and how they should live, but. That is one interpretation, that is one way of interpreting a lot of what is written here. And you can see this kind of battle within the interpretation of religion over time. So I wouldn't say, yes, you know, religion has been a vehicle for patriarchy, but it has also been interpreted deliberately, manipulated deliberately over many thousands of years in order to be a tool for patriarchy. In the 19, sorry, oh, so just, I was just going to say in the 19th century, for instance, one of the roots that women's rights activists in the U.S. used to fight for 
their gender equality was to rewrite the Bible. They wrote the women's Bible, reinterpreting what they saw in order to be able to make the case that religion didn't preclude them from having rights. And you can see that also in Islamic feminist traditions. So I would argue that religion is one vehicle. It doesn't, you know, you don't necessarily have to have no religion in order to fight against the patriarchy. But what we do need to do is rethink it and reinterpret it. So um, you write extensively about revolution in Iran, which is, of course, extraordinarily timely right now. Um, Can you talk about the ways in which the process you just described, in which religion can be used in a liberatory way, but that there seems to be a pendulum swing um, that can happen so that you end up seeing symbols like face coverings being used literally for both liberation and oppression, all within the span of an incredibly compressed amount of time in which change is happening very quickly and in which there are these confrontations socially, economically, religiously. Uh, can you talk about the sort of history that you describe and how that relates to what your thesis is? You know, I started writing The Patriarchs more than three years ago, and the chapter I wrote on Iran, I wrote before the protests, I finished before the protests started. Um, So it's been very interesting for me then to see what's been happening since the uh, death of Masa Amini and the huge um, kind of uprisings, popular uprisings that have included women, and comparing that to what happened in 1979. So during the 1979 revolution, people forget that... um, In that fight to overthrow the Shah, women's rights activists and socialists were a big part of that movement. People of all ages and all genders went out on the streets in order to achieve social change. What they actually got at the end with the Ayatollah and the Islamic Republic is not what everyone wanted, um, you know, that conservative outcome. But part of the reason for that was that the Shah had been so successful at quashing opposition but also because of his very close ties to the West, Western um, Moors' social attitudes were conflated with the Shah, which meant that after the revolution, in order to build a sense of um, a new Iran um, that was more true to itself, the country looked back on tradition. And of course, in Iranian tradition, that also meant looking back on its patriarchal practices and its traditional customs. One of those customs was wearing the veil. So during the revolution, you would see women veil as at that time it was mainly, you know, poorer and rural women used to do in order to show solidarity with the rest of the country. So in the revolution, women who had never veiled before would start veiling in order to look and profess their kind of fight for um, a different Iran. And now we move forward, you know, we zoom forward to today, and it's exactly the opposite, that because of this very conservative regime, which has imposed the veil on women, now the veil has become a symbol of exactly the opposite, of a new Iran that isn't as conservative as before. You know, in that instance, uh, like so many others, uh, what is often happening that confuses people I think, is what they interpret as a woman's complicity in her own oppression, as opposed to understanding that women are of the culture, want the tradition, belong in their societies, and are trying to find ways to negotiate all of, all of these 
um, threads of their lives. Uh, there's a, a term that you describe and, and, and that I think has always been a very useful term, which is uh, patriarchal bargaining or the, the, the patriarchal bargain. Can you talk about that? And um, I think that one of the examples you use is uh, Boko Haram child brides in the end. Um, so can you, can you talk about that and um, say exactly sort of what it means to, to be in this situation where you are constantly bargaining? You have to figure out how to live in, in the society you're in. Yeah, absolutely. And this has been a very difficult thing to write about because the feminist um, discourse at the moment very heavily focuses on choice and that, you know, what women's liberation really means is a woman's right to choose however she wants to live, which I'm fully behind. But I think we also need to understand that patriarchal systems are not just about the oppression of all of all women by all men. That's not how this works. This is a very complex um, system in which very powerful men hold most of the authority, but that authority and power is then distributed between people depending on how much they align with the overall aims of that project, of that system. And then to complicate things further, of course, we have other systems of oppression at work here, depending on status and caste and class and so many other things, wealth. So we have to kind of look at all those different layers and understand the ways in which individuals, men and women, have to negotiate within that system in order to maximize their life chances for themselves. Um, It would be obviously ridiculous to assume that the number one concern for every woman on the planet is gender equality. Because at that moment, for instance, if you are in a war zone and you're and you, you're in a very conservative country and your country is under threat, your primary concern is the safety of your family, including the men in your family, men who may be very patriarchal. <laughs> your, gen- your gender equality in that instance, in that moment, is not the number one issue. You know, this is an issue that's been covered very well, I think, in these this new wonderful crop of books on white feminism, including Rafia Zakaria's book, where she just kind of asks, why is it that we imagine there to be this huge sisterly solidarity when every woman has to negotiate life in her own way, has to struggle with life in her own way? And that is true of every single one of us. We all exist within a culture. That culture is intertwined with patriarchy in some way for many of us. And so the small choices that we make, um, the decisions that we have, the agency that we exercise, what we encourage others to do and the protection that we offer to others um, can sometimes be mediated by our concern for our own self in that short term. So, for example, when you look, as you mentioned, at... um, the issue of Boko Haram brides. So these are girl, young girls who are taken captive and then married to their captors and kept in horribly brutal conditions. Um, there was some reporting a number of years back looking at what happened to some of these girls. M- many of them died. Some of them very thankfully managed to escape. Some of them escaped and then returned to their captors. And when asked why it was that they did that, and of course there are you know, so many issues at play here. There is, you know, this syndrome of, uh, be, you know, becoming attached to those people who t- 
take you and then offer you protection. And especially when you're very young, there can be psychological effects. But for some of these women, what they would say is that um, they actually had more agency as Boko Haram wives with a bevy of women essentially acting as their slaves there to look after them than they might have in their own societies, which were also patriarchal, in which they had relatively less agency and power. And so they made a strategic decision in that moment, which is incredibly difficult and uncomfortable for us to be able to hear because why would anyone choose that life? But we have to understand that every single one of us is fighting for power and status and agency and freedom in the best way that we can. And sometimes that can mean, unfortunately, that we align with interests that ultimately harm women. So I think one of the the interesting things about the power, status, the drive that all human beings have to be safe, to belong, to be respected, to be heard, um, is the way in which we live in a world that is literally defined by the legacy of the Enlightenment, by these very polarized, dualistic, binary ways of thinking. And we've gendered pretty much everything. We've gendered status in infinite ways, uh, and we gender emotions, and uh, we we gender our labor. But you write about the ways in which many of the societies that you explore, of course, don't have that binary system. And I think it's surprising to some people that probably, like most of us, we're socialized to believe that it's, uh, uh, you know, there are two genders, that it's biological and natural, uh, as opposed to really understanding how culturally constructed and informed these identities and relationships are. Uh, So can you describe some of these sort of two, three, four gender systems that you encountered? Um, When we have these debates around gender, what it means to be a man or a woman, we imagine them to be new debates. So this is a modern phenomenon. Um, You know, this idea that gender could lie on the spectrum. In reality, societies right throughout the world for all of time have grappled with these uncertainties because, of course, none of us really or very few of us sit very comfortably within the stereotypes that society expects us to sit within. Um, So even in ancient Greece, which was a very oppressive society for women, which had this, you know, it, it essentially invented this idea of the oikos and the polis, this idea of a woman's sphere is in the home and the man's sphere is in the public. Even there, you can see in the literature and um, within the religions, this tension between um, what society was saying, what those in charge were saying, the elites were saying, that this is how you should live, and this is a woman's role and this is a man's role, and people feeling uncomfortable because they knew that not every person wanted to live that way, that not everyone felt comfortable that way. And you can see it in, for example, in many of the major world religions, for example, in Hinduism, you get gods and goddesses who transcend gender, who, um, you know, in modern parlance, although you know, it will be anachronistic in their own time, but in modern parlance are gender fluid that show different manifestations of gender that break gender norms. Even the Greek gods and goddesses broke gender norms. We have... Um, Athena and Artemis, who just don't follow the same uh, edicts around um, gender conformity that um, 
that we would imagine Greek society to have. So that underlying discomfort, this tension has always been there. And I think what that betrays, what we have to understand that it betrays, is the fact that this isn't perfect. The system was never perfect. When we introduce gender as an organizing principle on people, we are asking them to live in an unnatural way. We are asking them to follow rules that they might not actually follow because we know as individuals, we all are different, every single one of us. I studied engineering at university. I love to make things and build things. I do all the DIY at home. Those are things that in the society I'm in right now are considered masculine or associated with men, but that's who I am. And that's true. You know, every single person has their own way of being and living and their own particular interests and desires and needs. Um, What patriarchal control does is try to erase all of that and say that you have to live in one certain way in order for this society to function for those in charge. You know, too, I think that one of the threads throughout all of your books that ties to what you just said is patriarchal control of knowledge uh, and also as part of male domination of the societies we live in, the idea that there's this objectivity, this scientific objectivity, um, and we're supposed to ignore the ways in which that objectivity seamlessly elides with uh, male experiences, particularly white men's experiences uh, of the world. And you have some examples, certainly in your earlier books, but in this one as well, of scientists and researchers across disciplines who will encounter fact, a fact pattern, who will encounter a settlement or um, some finding that they have. And because of the stereotypes that they hold, because of the beliefs that they have, they're unable to imagine what the facts might represent. Um, and um, can you talk about that in this context? Because I think that that is something that has plagued certainly feminist feminist concerns about addressing the histories that we have or reimagining the futures, um, but continues to plague us. Yeah, absolutely. And this is true. Well, you know, when you're raised in a system that says the past was this way, and when you go out to investigate the past, these are the patterns you can expect to find. It shouldn't surprise us that historians and archaeologists then will discover things that don't fit in with those preconceptions and then really struggle with them. So one of the examples I give in the patriarchs is of the finding of the remains of a 9,000... These are 9,000-year-old remains in the Andes of um, a hunter buried with clearly what is a hunting toolkit with projectile points and everything. Um, And when analysis later revealed that this hunter was... Uh, female, that this teenager (laughs) who was clearly hunting and buried with their hunting tools was female, there was a huge amount of confusion. You can see it in the literature that um, there there was one male archaeologist who told National Geographic magazine, well, you know, you can't go out hunting when you're nursing a baby, as though every young woman (laughs) right throughout history would only have been nursing nursing babies babies. all the time. How did young women ever do anything else? That's (laughs) That's the big question. It's quite bizarre. It is bizarre. I mean, you have these dull moments because you describe, I mean, we've all seen that sort of, was that Viking warrior actually a woman? Or, you know, I think you have another one in uh, a Sumerian finding that just left some scientists baffled. Yes. Um, yeah. And there are so many of them. There are so many yeah. of them. Mm-hmm. That's you know. the most incredible thing. Yeah. Um, so do you have, I mean, 
you've immersed yourself in this world and uh, are having these discussions. Do, do you have a, an approach that you take? Uh, because in my experience, there's an awful lot of uh, denialism that all of this just represents outliers. And one of the things you say is that we have to look to the margins, um, which is a very, in my mind, a feminist orientation, which is that you look at the negatives you know, if there were laws saying women shouldn't preach, it's because women were preaching. Hmm. You know, you don't make a law like that unless it's happening. So can you talk a lot, like, uh, talk more about the idea of taking what's on the margins and trying just to understand how to apply it? Absolutely. I think as as a journalist who writes about human difference, what interests me the most is not the average. Um, the average is following what the social norms are. What What interests me more is the exceptions, everybody who doesn't follow the pattern that biology so-called dictates for us. Um, And the fact that there are so many exceptions, and even more, you know, the more evidence we have, the more exceptions we find, tells us something about these so-called rules. It says that perhaps the rules don't apply. Maybe these rules are not the way that human variation actually works. Maybe it's not how we are naturally, whether it's you know, in in any sphere of life, Um, but particularly around gender, that right throughout, we struggle to put people in boxes. We are constantly, um, you you know, there's this almost desperate need to make sure that everybody conforms to the categories that we have assigned them. We never ask whether the categories themselves are the problem, that maybe it's the categories we need to rethink, or maybe having categories is what we need to rethink. That, you know, that I, I, I admit, when, when I saw the subtitle of your book and it said The Origins of Patriarchy, and then reading through and looking at your, your thinking, I thought, well, isn't part of the problem this notion of origins, right? The tree of knowledge, the very linear way of looking at the information. Because you're describing what you know, many people would describe as a rhizomatic knowledge. It's coming from everywhere. It's bubbling up. It has no origin. We can never know. But the point isn't to know, right? Yeah, that, and you're absolutely right. There are no actual origins. Um, it's not as though patriarchy emerged at one point and now we live with it and we've had it in the same way for 2,000 years or 5,000 years. This is a system, or these are systems that are constantly being reinvented and reasserted and manipulated in new ways. People are always finding new ways to assert power that even if we fix gender inequality, inequality one day, and we create a system that is perfect in terms of gender, I'm certain that there will be, you know, other forms of power and other systems of power which will rise up to replace it. Um, Because there are always people that want more power and more status than others. So one of the enduring myths that you refer to is this idea that one of these origins is in humankind's turn to agriculture. And... This comes up over and over and over again. And, um, you know, can you describe your response to that? And in particular, honestly, like just the complexity of even that idea. I think you make, you make the, the point of showing the difference between societies that used hoes versus societies that used plows, uh, which I thought was fascinating. Can you talk about that myth and the various ways in which you can sort of pick it apart and look at it? Um, because it does have a strong hold on the imagination. 
It does. And in fact, I was just at um, a gender and science communication conference in Spain the other week, and there was an anthropologist there who repeated this. She said, well, it was with the rise of agriculture, surely, that women lost power because, um, as this theory goes, that was when property emerged and agriculture is very labor intensive. So, you know, that would be when women retreated into the home and men took over. And actually, the evidence doesn't show anything of the sort. If anything, um, agriculture or the shoots of agriculture, because it wasn't a kind of switch that happened. It was more of a gradual people trying it out, you know, trying out domestication. If it worked for them, they would stick with it. If it didn't, then they would, you know, go back to what they had before which is why we still have a variety of different um, agricultural systems to this day. So it was very slow. It was gradual. And certainly we have agriculture for a very long time before we see any kind of systematic gendered oppression. So the timelines don't match up there. They just simply don't match up. Um, What's interesting to me is why do we have this theory in the first place? And part of the reason is we want there to be a simple explanation for gender depression. We want to be able to say there is this one thing and it can explain why men have so much power now. And it must be somehow linked to their biology because why else would we have this? Now, we don't ask that of class oppression. We don't demand that of racial oppression. We don't look for ways in which poorer people or different races or inferior and then use that in the 21st century as a way to explain why groups of people are oppressed. Why do we do that with gender? Why do we do that with sex? There is no necessary reason given the variety of different societies out there, many of which hold women in positions of power and authority, why we would have to have a patriarchal system. And I think that theory around agriculture almost positions it um, in that 19th century sense of saying that modernity somehow was the route into women's oppression. Well, not necessarily. So we're quite evidently globally living through uh, an era of political disruption and I think backlash to all types of movements for equality. Um, But there's a particularly macho fascistic aspect to the rise of certain um, political leaders in the world, um, including, for example, Trump in the United States, Bolsonaro, there are many examples, Orban, you can can sort of go around the world and and find this. Um, Would you, when you you step back and and you look at the rise of, of those leaders, Uh, in societies globally uh, that are networked, that Mm -hmm. our, you know, we live in a thoroughly global environment in which this is happening. How would you describe what's happening um, in terms of patriarchy, in terms of the moment we're in right now? It is very disturbing. And I think the rise of these populist leaders has also mirrored um, the rise, for example, of anti-abortion Uh, legislation, not just here in the US, but also in Poland, for instance. Mm -hmm. But we have to understand each region, each territory um, in its own context. So, for example, part of the reason that in Eastern Europe and in Russia, you've seen the the rise of these kind of strong men, masculinist leaders who very much espouse this uh, form of religious conservatism that is very threatening to gender rights, not just the rights of women, the rights of LGBTQ people um, who are 
deeply opposed to so-called gender ideology. Um, I think in that region, we have to understand that the end of communism um, was one of these vehicles in the same way that the overthrow of the Shah in Iran was one of these vehicles for looking back to the past, for looking to tradition, this kind of mythical past in which um, everything was better. <laughs> you know, this is part of the part of the rhetoric of populism and nationalism, that the past was somehow better than the present and that if we could only reclaim that. Now, in countries that have had patriarchal traditions, like in Iran and like in Eastern Europe and Russia, what you see then is their reclaiming of these very deep-rooted, gendered ideas of the family, what, what is appropriate for men and women to do, how we should live, this obsession with women kind of nurturing and having more children... Um, and in the US, um, I think there are elements of that as well. You know, Trump, without a doubt, calls back to this idea, you know, even in that phrase, make America great again, again, implies that there was this moment in the past in which um, things were better and that in that past, which is often this kind of 1950s version of America, also happened to be one in which women and minorities had far less rights than they do now, it, which was a very kind of segregated and very, very much a gendered society. And that is appealing to some people. It's appealing to men and women. I mean, we have to understand that in Hungary, for instance, um, there are many conservative women who are very much invested in the aims of um, that state who support Orban. Um, and th sadly, the same is true in the United States, that we have to understand this rhetoric, the mechanisms and the narrative that they're trying to push. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, I think that's a hard thing. I think many people feel as though all women are born with the desire to be free of patriarchy in some way, that they surely can recognize this, um, which implies all types of things, right? There's the cor corrupt, corruptness of that universal universality um, and also just the complete denial of all of the other forms of oppression that can affect a woman's life. What, what I find sort of interesting at this moment, um, having personally lived and written through much of the backlash that we're seeing, particularly online, isn't just the call to this sort of what I think of as a petro-masculine kind of fantasy world of the 50s, right? Like, mm -hmm. it's also tied to progress and the future and mm -hmm. innovation and a certain ideal of manhood and womanhood. But this call back to the Greeks, mm -hmm. literally this idealized idea of Greek democracy and virtue and the manly virtues, which we're about to hear a lot about, I think, in, in the sort of coming election cycle, um, certainly in the United States... But I think you describe this invention and constant reinvention of patriarchy um, in reference to this uh, kind of clinging to Greek life. Can you talk about that in terms of the role that calling back to the glorious days of Greek d democracy, what that represents today? It's, it's actually fascinating to me how much in the West uh, we look up to antiquity, to ancient mm. Greece and Rome, as this kind of golden age in which all the rules for life 
<laughs> have been provided, and all we have to do is follow them. That's right. Um, and I was certainly raised in that tradition. The school I went to, I learned Latin when I was growing up, <laughs> and I was as enthralled to this period of time as anybody else because I was taught that I had to be, that this was, you know, you walk around London or you, even parts of New York if you go downtown, you will see columns columns everywhere. all over washington dc all over washington dc yeah absolutely this neoclassical architecture which is just one sign of how much western democracies have borrowed from ancient greece and rome in their development not just yes. in the way that they look but also in the way that they think of course we forget that even in its own time ancient athens was a huge outlier in the way that it imagined the roles of men and women. It was not normal. It was not considered normal at all. Right. It was very weird, even by its, uh, even in its own time. All you had to do was go to Egypt, ancient Egypt, very powerful uh, force at that time, politically and, and culturally in that part of the world. And in ancient Egypt, there were educated women working in professions, working as doctors, women who were pharaohs, women who were queens, of course, the most famous, <laughs> Cleopatra and Nefertiti, um, very different gender norms. What the kind of rules that Athens developed over time, ancient Athens, were bizarre. They were recognized as bizarre even within that time. If you look at the literature, it is kind of seething with this patriarchal rage, this anger against women, this idea that women are somehow the root of all evil, that nothing good yes. can come of them. It is just so warped. And it, it beggars belief that, you know, even now in the 21st century, we would look at that as some kind of golden age. Mm. Why do we want to borrow the um, sexual politics of ancient Athens and translate that into modern societies? And that's, of course, the reason we do it, the reason we look up to it, is because it served the people in power who were developing these democracies, the men in power, who thought, well, wouldn't it be great if we, could, if we could have that kind of world in which women will serve us, in which they will stay at home? And that's why they nurtured in the United States this idea of female domesticity. Well, I think that is an excellent way to wrap our delightful <laughs> conversation. I thank you so much for talking to me today. Um, please, everyone, this is such a wonderful book. Uh, highly recommend it. And um, I think with that, we will close. Thank you so much. Yes, it's been such thank a you. pleasure. I really enjoyed it. Me too. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this week's Afterwards podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, listen to C-SPAN's podcast about books. Learn about the latest nonfiction books and best-selling authors. In each episode, we report on bestsellers lists and book reviews from around the country. You'll also hear authors talking about their latest books and insider interviews with nonfiction book publishing industry experts. <laughs>